This is Sophie Wilson, and you are listening to the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast. Welcome to the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast. My name is Linus Wilson. Support the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast on patreon.com slash slowboatsailing for free bonus episodes and audiobooks. In today's episode, I talked to Ryan and Nicole Levinson of Two Afloat Sailing about their cruise to French Polynesia. I met up with them about a year ago uh, when I was in Tahiti on my way to fly back to the U.S. after doing the 3,500 nautical mile passage to Hivoa, which you can see in Season 2, Episodes uh, 1 through 5 of Slow Boat Sailing. So I met up with them at the docks at Papiete Marina there in Tahiti on kind of a rainy, overcast January day. I, like many other people in the sailboat cruising community, was introduced to their story by Sailing La Vagabond's episode, which featured Ryan in the Marquesas. And I'll let Ryan tell you why La Vagabond and many other people have been inspired by his story. I have a disease called muscular dystrophy, specifically FSH, muscular dystrophy, and it causes muscles throughout my body to disappear. And you'll get to see Ryan and Nicole in episode six of season two of Slow Boat Sailing, which premieres January 4th, 2018 at 5 p.m. New York City time. Before we get to their interview, here's a word from one of our sponsors for this episode. Sail timer wind instrument, advanced features, low price. The Sail Timer Wind Instrument is a wireless solar-powered masthead anemometer. It works with lots of navigation and charting apps. You can raise it from deck level if your boat is in the water, and it has lots of other cool innovations, too. Check out the website to see how it works and get a discount while supporting our sponsor. And you get $5 off for a limited time if you go to sailtimerwind.com slash slowboatsailing. So Ryan, you're going to hear, comes from a very, he's a very athletic guy, uh, and he was struck with muscular dystrophy, and he found that he had to switch his sports uh, to, to keep active. And eventually they went on this cruise about three years ago. They've been doing some interviews recently, for instance, with Tabitha Lipkin, who I believe is the daughter of Cruising Outpost Magazine's publisher, Bob Bitchin. I think Tabitha works at a TV station in Southern California, where Ryan and Nicole are from. So I think that their time in French Polynesia is almost over. They had another year when I interviewed them back in January 2017. But now in 2018, I think they're going to make a decision about whether they're going to go west, say, to the Cooks or Tonga, or if they're going to go north to Hawaii, uh, because there's a three-year limit to how long you can bring your boat to French Polynesia before importing it and all the legal hassles that go along with that. So as you'll hear, they got a kind of long-stay visa. Nicole has an EU passport, so she can stay quite a long time there. But Ryan kind of got his long-stay passport the wrong way. You want to apply for it before you leave if you're thinking about that and you're a non-EU citizen. So you get 90 days and in a six-month period. So for me, as an American citizen, and say somebody from Canada, they'd have the same issue. You would have 90 days within six months, and that's all you would get in terms of how you personally, the person, could stay in the, the country. Now, the boat can stay there for three 36 months, 
but the, the person can only stay there for 90 days within a six-month period. So it's not like you can fly out of French Polynesia for a couple days and then come back and get another 90 days. It doesn't work that way. Uh, you can do a max 180 days a year without a long-stay visa. So I've been interviewing crew members over the holidays. It's going really well, and I'll talk more about that in the patron-only bonus episode. We plan to have a patron in the boat for part of the 2018 cruise, and being a patron now is a great way to get a leg up on the 2019 drawing if we hit our goal. Our patrons and sponsors have helped defray the costs of the camera gear that we use to film the Round the World vlog series. So one new piece of camera gear I got was the DJI Spark, which is the small drone made by DJI. So DJI uh, is not a sponsor of this show, uh, but they make uh, drone equipment uh, that is GPS, GPS enabled. It also has very good gimbaled cameras, so they have very good uh, camera shots. And we use the drone footage in the YouTube series, both the vlogs and other videos. I tested out the, the Spark uh, in Chicago in kind of 20 degree weathers near the lakefront uh, where there was a marina pretty close to the Navy Pier part of Chicago's downtown lakefront district. But all the boats were out of this harbor, so I assume they were hauled out maybe because of the ice or something. There was no ice when I was there, but uh, didn't get a ton of flight time there. I used, I did not buy the controller. Uh, so for the Spark, which is the small drone, it's a very, it's very easy to use and that's, uh, it's very reliable and that's why people go for the DJI's, say the Sparks or the Phantom or the, uh, the, the Mavic to take aerial photography, right? And the the problem I had was I was uh, it doesn't come standard with a joystick controller. Uh, you you used your app on your mobile device, so in my case, my iPhone, and my iPhone kind of seized up, and I was very lucky uh, to bring the Spark like eight feet uh, high and just onto safe ground where I could retrieve it versus uh, my iPhone dying when uh, the the spark was over the water. Uh, so after that experience, I, I sprung the extra $120 to get the controller because I really, I, I'd like to use the spark more on kind of hiking expeditions, which we do kind of a lot of in season. We did a lot in season two or just maybe more shore excursions. The, the Phantom is a very sturdy and, and good flying drone uh, but it's it's pretty big and it's kind of bulky. Can't really put it in a backpack. Uh, you kind of you have to have it like a separate suitcase for it or something, or you carry it out, and then you have all the issues of it getting wet. And so I I think the Spark will get a lot more use uh, in terms of the the filming of the vlog in season three uh, than the Phantom, which I pretty much only used when I was in port and I would do kind of port shots of that, but I didn't take it on hiking expeditions or any kind of touristy type things uh, because it was just too bulky. Why don't you tell me about how you came up with the swivel? So people, they like to use them and we would notice and explain to them a lot of the weaknesses that exist that, you know, with the swivels that were on the market and kind of make sure that they understood those cautions and saying, yeah, swivels have a function, but you're weighing that, you know, what you're gaining versus the risks that you're taking on the other hand. So you have to consider every situation on whether you really want to be utilizing the swivel or not. And I think that and we just saw kind of like there's a need in the marketplace for something that was a better design and something more reliable. We use the innovative heavy duty Mantis swivel on our boat. 
That was Deneen Taylor of Mantis Anchors, and you can get all their products at mantismarine.com or at other fine retailers, and they're a sponsor of this episode. So I actually kind of was going back through memory lane, uh, looking at our old pictures, and I came across a whole treasure trove of old pictures in Jana and my old iPhones. Uh, so I lost a couple iPhones after I bought a boat. So I lost my iPhone 4 and 5. Uh, but my iPhone 3 was owned before I uh, started boating. Uh, and I still have that, although the battery's kind of shot. So I'm working on uh, resurrecting the battery, but I was able to copy all the pictures from my iPhone 3 and uh, Jana's iPhone 3GS and uh, my or her iPhone 4 and uh, we have a lot of pictures of the old boat uh, that we didn't have uh, the, the Penelope which is talked about in Slow Boat to the Bahamas. But uh, if I can get that battery for my iPhone 3. I think I'll take that as also a spare camera. I do most of my filming actually uh, from my iPhone camera, uh, but I also use the action cameras too as a backup, especially uh, when I run out of battery life. So we have two communications methods that, that Iridium go and then that we have a Delorm. I got a new Delorm because the other one got wet, I believe, and it stopped working. And thankfully, uh, the nice thing about like the iPhones is right, uh, or other smartphones is that you have all these apps that coordinate with things like the Delorm or the Iridium Go, uh, or you have charting apps like Navionics. And that, you know, these devices uh, tend to be not just. Uh, what we use for phones, uh, but also uh, what we use for navigation and communications, even offshore, uh, because of the, their tie-ins to these other satellite phone devices. So they, it, it, to have that second iPhone, I think would be cool in terms of just getting pictures and also uh, at, as a backup uh, to uh, the, the charting and navigation and communication apps uh, that I use uh, via uh, the handheld device. But I think you can get like a, a, a iPhone SE right now for like 250 or something. Uh, so it's not it's not a terrible expense and hopefully that would be unlocked so you could use that uh, if you're going to foreign countries. Uh, so I think my, my iPhone 3, we'll have to get it unlocked if I want to start putting SIM cards in it. And then I've kind of been gathering, uh, what is it, uh, engine parts as part of to get ready for the next season. I'm going to get to the boat early and repack the stuffing box, I think, if I can't find a mechanic to do it for me. And I also... Uh, I'm thinking of putting a new coupling where the the propeller shaft meets the engine transmission and because we broke some bolts that were holding that shaft to the coupling and maybe that's something wrong with the, the coupling itself. I don't know. I think I'm getting the impression there's kind of a whole industry about the alignment here in the States. And so if you go to Boat Yard, there'll probably be a prop shop nearby. At least there was one in New Orleans like that. I think that'd be all over Florida and that type of thing about this alignment shaft issue. And I'm not sure that infrastructure exists in Tahiti and certainly not beyond. And communicating that is also a big issue. So I think the issue we had I had was that there was like one mechanic in the part of Tahiti I was in and his English was not so hot and he was also very busy so I was having trouble getting him to come out so I had the, the simple task of repacking the stuffing box which I may end up doing myself uh, that I wanted him to do but he could never come out 
he told me he was going to retire in a few months before I got back to the boat. So I don't know. And then there's a payment issue. He doesn't accept a credit card, etc. So it's a, it's it's a complicated. It's not like uh, the yards that I'm used to dealing with, where they they do have the independent contractors, but you do the billing through them, and they 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 act as a general contractor. We had sort of those issues a little bit in Ecuador, right, uh, where they did the cutlass bearing, but they did have a general contractor, so he didn't control the yard itself, but he was a general contractor, and he, he also spoke English, so that was nice. And so we got some work done, but I don't know how much we're going to get done in Tahiti. Uh, maybe a place like Rayatea would even be easier to, to get work done. But since the boat is hauled out, you know, I, I guess the cutlass bearing stuff I think would be better when it's hauled out. And I think the alignment stuff might be better when it's hauled out. But I could be wrong. I'm not an expert on it. So I'll get done what needs to be done. But uh, I'm not going to delay the cruise uh, substantially. And so I always put the engine work. Uh, as a priority in terms of things I want to get done. I actually got a lot done at the end of the season in terms of getting the the third backup autopilot installed, for example. Uh, so I did a fair bit of boat work while I was, I had some extra time between my flight and when Sophie and Jana had left. So with this interview with Ryan Levinson, he does most of the talking, uh, but his wife, Nicole, is also there in the cockpit with me. I am a very kind of tangible person, I think, that I really, when I'm asking him questions, I'm thinking, what is the anchorages like? What is the ports like? What can you do in those places? And... Ryan, I think, is more philosophical in his outlook and definitely in his answers. And so I think, you know, when I ask, what was your favorite anchorages, I'm asking about places, but you'll find that Ryan is going to go into a more philosophical discussion about what does it mean to have an ideal anchorage? What are the optimal anchoring techniques uh, that type of thing. So he kind of often goes into a philosophical discussion when I'm trying to get into a kind of very focused question, kind of not a very long question to answer. But, you know, I, I think that's part of the kind of spiritual nature of the way that he he approaches life. And I think that comes through. Here is Ryan and Nicole from two afloat sailing. Why don't you give me your names? I'm Nicole Levinson. Ryan Levinson. Okay, so we're here in uh, beautiful Papeete, Tahiti, right downtown. And I just happened to be here walking by and I thought, well, maybe there'll be somebody cool to interview. Tell me the name of your YouTube channel. Two afloat. And you you guys, know our YouTube channel. <laughs> to afloat. To afloat. Uh, the word to. If they go to toafloat.com, it takes them right to the channel. And the, you got a blog too, I guess. It's all vlog now. It's all video. Okay. Yeah. What is your home port? San Diego, California. Okay. So when did you leave San Diego? Two years ago. Just over two Just years over, ago. yeah. December 14th, 2014 is when we left San Diego. What kind of boat do you have? Naoma. She's an Ericsson 38. 1988. And why did you pick this boat? You know, we were we were looking for Ericsson's. They're extremely well built. For example, the deck to hole joint is blast over instead of just bolted together. Um, stuff you usually see on a much more expensive boat. So for the amount of money, she's a very solid boat and, and also equally important to us. She sails well. She's fun to sail. You know, she's kind of a performance cruiser. Uh, we love sailing. So we wanted a boat that, you know, could, could perform in lighter winds. It could in a variety of conditions, was solid. We wouldn't have to worry about uh, babying her as much, and it was comfortable. And she kind of checked all the boxes within our price range, and turned out to, to pass our expectations. So, how long were you looking for this boat before you bought her? Not long. How long? Yeah, I think maybe only like a month. I mean, we yeah. knew we wanted an Ericsson, and we were searching for any of them that were for sale on the West Coast. And I think there were only like two or three. Yeah, we we kind of lucked into this boat. Uh, we got her the day she went on the market. 
Uh, the previous owner was um, very diligent about maintaining her. And I, I should ask you really quick, because I know you're editing this. Is this, go, is this mostly for sailors, or is it for general public? Or? Yeah, it's aimed at cruising sailors. Okay. People I, I didn't know how technical. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm talking about deck the whole Yeah, you, yeah you can be really technical. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, we got her the day she went on the market, actually. The previous owner was, was really fastidious with maintenance. He'd run the engine regularly under load. He did oil changes at about half the recommended intervals. Awesome. Uh, just fantastic. Good shopping, right? Yeah. yeah you mm-hmm. knew, knew what to look for. Yeah. At the right time. What boats did you own before this boat? We had a Catalina 25 for a little while, uh, which we we got her for 2700 something like that. And we sold her for about 95 something like that. Yeah, about um, 9200 wow. Yeah. We put a lot of work into her. Put a lot of work into her. She was probably the most kitted out. She had an autopilot <laughs> connected to a GPS. She had plumbing. She had a head. You know, yeah. she was she was way beyond any Catalina 25. So. <laughs> she's a little heavier than she started out with. A little bit. Yeah. A bigger trailer. A bigger, well, she kept her in the water. Did you say yeah. composting head that you plumbed? And, yeah. Wow, I mean, awesome. we, we um, sort of cut our teeth in, in, in um, systems on that boat. Yeah. yeah. Really nice varnish. <laughs> so you guys, do you have a composting head now or? No, no. Okay. I wish. That thing was great. Yeah, it worked. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it worked uh, <laughs> we actually had two on that boat. We went through two, and uh, I don't want to give the wrong one. That was the best one. Yeah. Yeah, the second one was way better. So, sorry, guys, you have a fifty percent chance of getting it right. <laughs> I, I think one's it like the airhead. Yeah, one's the airhead. One's the nature's head. And without a doubt, the 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 newer one, not the original one. They they used to work together and. They split up, and the newer guy, that head is way better, and the customer service was exceptional. I mean, night wow. day. Okay. So do your homework. Talk to the guys before you buy. You'll get the right one. All right. That's a, that's a good option, especially if you don't have room for a whole new tank. Right. Yeah, exactly. You know what? You, you know how you can tell? The one that got was the one that comes naturally with the full-size seat. Okay. The other one, you have to. it's like an option. Okay. So you left San Diego. Do you mind if I ask your ages? No. I'm 44. Yes. 44. Okay. I'm 42. Yeah. Full disclosure. I think a lot of people would ask, you know, you, you, you more or less full-time cruising, you know, how are you able to afford it? I think a lot of people would ask that. We're not more or less full-time cruising. We are full. I didn't leave yeah. the boat for two years. Cool. Just recently, it's the first trip. We are able to afford it a number of ways. We keep our expenses as low as possible. We do literally, uh, I think... I can think of maybe one thing that we didn't do ourselves in terms of maintenance or installations prior to leaving. We uh, eat local foods as much as possible. That we, we rarely go out to dinner. We rarely go out. We never go to hotels. We don't go to shows or anything like that very often. In terms of income, uh, we get some money from YouTube advertising revenue, and we get some money from Patreon, which is like a website where uh, people can pledge a certain amount of money per video right yeah. and uh you know kind of like leaving a tip for for the amount of effort we put in they appreciate the content uh, plus we own a house that we are able to rent out and that covers uh, a significant chunk of our expenses I, I need to add also just for the interest of full disclosure um i was a competitive sailor for a while before and, and was had some success in a variety of ocean sports and that led us to be able to have some sponsorships from companies that helped us kit the boat out in the first place. So um, a lot of the equipment and stuff on this boat is more Gucci maybe than we would have probably been able to afford if we had to purchase it all at full price. Well, go ahead and mention your sponsors. It's a good point to bring up. Okay, the best thing to do is to go to ryanlevinson.com to the yeah. sponsors page Okay. because there's a bunch. And I'd be rambling on and on and on. But it's companies like North Sales, uh, Navico, which makes B&G Simrad, Solar Stick, which is like electronic stuff. Yeah, was looking at that. That yep. was pretty impressive. Yeah, it's <laughs> awesome cool. stuff. Uh, awesome. Force Bar makes uh, through holes and they make um, uh, the whisker pole. Right. Uh, Pacific uh, Offshore Rigging did a lot of the rigging on the boat. I mean, just, I, I just they go to... We were pretty selective on who we and we invited on board our program. And if you go to uh, RyanLevinson.com, you can get all that information. Tell me about your your competitive sailing and I, your water sports. Okay. Um, briefly, competitive sailing was it was a short career, short, intense career. We uh, I got sort of drafted onto a team for a national championship regatta about four years ago, maybe something like that. Mm-hmm. And I, I sailed performance sailing prior to that. I'd crewed on a number of boats. And uh, I taught sailing at a performance sort of racing-oriented sailing school for a bunch of years, you know, almost a decade. And then when I, we sailed this regatta and we won, and that sort of gelled the team together, which then later we competed in 
uh, regatta that turned out to be a national team qualifier in Miami. And we got second in that one, an international regatta. And then that put us into the number one spot in our division for the U.S. sailing team. Wow. Preparing for, for the Olympics just took place. So I did that for, uh, you know, a portion of that season. And it was a full-time gig under contract, salary, the whole thing. Wow. But I um, we already had Naoma and we wanted to cruise. So I made the decision uh, to do this while we still could. And, uh, you know, I, I, my team understood it was early enough, it was far enough away from the, from, um, the Olympics that Olympics that it didn't, it didn't screw up. So it was a good, good decision. So you, you were, you started out San Diego, right? Yes. So where did you go after San Diego? Mexico. Baja. Baja. Love okay. Baja. Okay. There's a lot of storms around there. How did you kind of dodge the storms? Well, we went down in the winter. Right. So the storms came from the north and they were sort of, kind of like like violent rainstorms okay so you were not in the hurricane season no no, yeah, no. We, had, we had actually great weather yeah great wind the whole way down baja most of the time the storms have pretty much fizzled out by the time they get to san diego they come from the north so when you get down into baja generally during the winter months you have fairly good weather cold but but not too stormy so on so you're on the pacific side right at the sea of cortez side oh. you're on both sides yeah. huh? On the Pacific side, what was your favorite port? I can't. There's a, there's a lot of places on the Pacific side that have uh, kind of tucked in little hidden anchorages that nobody ever goes to that have very good surf or, uh, you know, just, they're just really beautiful and secluded. And, and uh, some of those were, were our favorites. We can't really pick one particular picture. So you do some surfing? Yeah. Yeah. There so you some... mentioned other water sports as surfing one of them? or? Yeah, I've been surfing my whole life. You know, I have Buster Dystrophy if you've been watching the videos. And, yeah. um, I've lost the ability to ride a regular surfboard. So mm-hmm. now when I ride waves, it's mostly on boogie boards or on stand-up paddle boards. Okay. Um, which actually, the boogie boards are perfect out here because the waves are really hollow and heavy. And, and so a board that's well-suited for that kind of surf. In Mexico, it was all stand-up paddle boards. The waves there are much softer and kind of longer and easier to ride. And the stand-up paddle board was, was ideal for that. Other water sports. I'm, you know, I'm a scuba instructor and a kiteboarding instructor, but I don't teach that anymore. I just, just for fun, we love free diving and we love kiteboarding. Nicole just got her first harness. She's going to get into it more this season, maybe. I'm going to try it out. See <laughs> how yeah, well, I like it. <laughs> uh, and I used to race paddle boards uh, so, and jet skis. So, Nicole, what did you do before you guys left? Work-wise? Or, yeah, work-wise. Uh, elementary school teacher. Okay. Uh, first grade. And then the summertime, I was an ocean lifeguard. Right. With San Diego. My mom used to teach kindergarten. Oh, oh, I say every teacher needs to try and teach kindergarten just one year. <laughs> <laughs> I think she did once, first grade for a long time, too. That's Is that why you went to the other end of the spectrum to college? You guys went down the Baja coast, enjoyed those uh, secluded anchorages, uh, and then you went up the Baja Peninsula. About what time of year was that? A couple of months after we left. January. Right? Yeah, January. Late January. So you left, say, October? Or no, we November? left San Diego in December. December. Mid so, December. Well, you guys moved quick. We had to get to. I was officiating at not... a friend's wedding. Okay. All right. Near La Paz. So right. we uh, and we had we had sailed up and down Baja in the past, and we okay. spent a lot of time in Baja. So we kind of knew where we wanted to go, and we hit those spots. All right. And uh, so, so a lot of Baja it was kind of offshore. Not a lot of port hopping, maybe, or, or almost no port hopping. Yeah. We stopped in Ensenada to check in, right? And we stopped in Cabo very briefly. Why did we stop at Cabo? I guess just to rest. We didn't. We stopped in San Jose del Cabo. San Jose del Cabo. Oh, because uh, the northerlies were so oh, that's strong. Right. The we weather. Yeah. To wait for weather. To wait for that weather window. And then, how much time did you spend in the Sea of Cortez? Not a lot. It, it was maybe the five wedding. Weeks. <laughs> there's a there's a kind of a funny story. It's a short. <laughs> there was the wedding was. Nicole was sort of in charge of, of getting us to this wedding, like figuring out where it was and all that. And she said, okay, it's near La Paz. So we said, okay, we have to get up to La Paz by this date. So we started going up the coast and we got stuck in this anchorage called um, Frales, mm-hmm. which is sort of a really well-protected anchorage from the north winds, but it's not close enough to La Paz to be able to go to a wedding. So we're sitting there waiting for the winds to die and waiting and they're blowing, blowing, blowing day after day. And like almost a week goes by and we're not able to get out. Now we're up against the wire. We have to get up to La Paz. So the day where we, we poke our heads out into the wind, it had moderated just enough that we could beat up our way north to La Paz instead of aborting down to Cabo and taking a bus. 
So we beat our way up to the next the next sort of little cove, which was called um, Sueños, the Key of the Sueños, the Bay of the Dreams. And we, we got there, and this is this beautiful bay, you know, and it was amazing. We stopped there for the night, and we figured, okay, we'll eat dinner. Not for the whole night. We just figured we'd eat dinner, and then we'd cruise around to La Paz the next day and get there for the wedding. Mm-hmm. Um, so we ate dinner and very, very reluctantly left this great protected anchorage. we were there for two hours. Maybe, to beat our way back to La Paz. So we get to La Paz, sailed all through the night. We've been underway for a couple of days now. We get there at first light, pull into the marina, go online to figure out, because now it's the night of the, the rehearsal, you know, we have to go. And uh, it turns out that the, the wedding is in Swingers. <laughs> but the been. invitation said near La Paz. <laughs> so what was your favorite places in the Sea of Cortez or just kind of the same thing? You just like the, the remote bits. That's it. We we're kind of go away from anchorages that have lots of people, usually. Um, we're not afraid to approach anchorages that are a little bit more challenging or maybe a little bit less protected under under certain conditions. Um, we, we have a rock to anchor and an all-chain road, and, and we have some experience. And we trust those, and it allows us to uh, maybe operate with a slightly less expansive margin of safety than, than um, somebody with maybe less experience or less ground tackle they don't trust as much. Or maybe there's more risk adverse. Um, we don't take what we consider to be unnecessary chances or risks. It's definitely all calculated. But, but you know, we're not afraid to go to places that aren't in the guides we're not afraid to go to places that we've seen on a satellite image or in a chart, but maybe we don't know anything about other than that. And then sort of feel out the anchorage and, and, and go from there. So some of the anchorages that we like the best aren't even, we don't even know their names. You know? Yeah. And that's one of the amazing things about Baja and Sea of Cortez and a lot of French Polynesia is it's still a frontier that, that allows that sort of exploration and, and sort of wilderness experience to take place. Yeah. I think that came across, I was, watching like one of your recent videos um maybe after before the propane video uh, i don't know what episode is the propane in uh, it's eight is that eight episode, episode eight. eight you were doing that you were anchoring alone you were doing the solo sale because oh, right. nicole was gone you kind of enumerated that philosophy that you were talking about there taking the chance you went from Mexico, where'd you go from Mexico? Did you come straight to French Polynesia? Straight to the Marquesas, yeah. I mean, we went from the Sea of Cortez, worked our way down to mainland Mexico, and then we jumped from Puerto Vallarta. From Puerto Vallarta. Yeah, I, I, you know, I've noticed that reluctantly now that I've done like 3,500 miles, that it's actually <laughs> a lot closer as the crow flies <laughs> from Mexico. So I was a and little jealous. And you don't jealous. have to deal with um, the Tuana Packer. Well, that being said, you guys had to go through the ITCG and yeah, stuff like that. Yeah, that was part of the fun. Yeah, so, so that's a trade-off. Mine was a pretty easy. But you got to see Central America. You got America. to see Central America. And we're, we're just, awesome. you know, we yeah. don't know what that's like. One of the things that strikes me right now, that we're sitting in Tahiti. You're both American, so you guys have a long-stay visa. Well, Nicole's yeah. German. Yeah, I have, oh, you're I, German. Well, I have both passports. Okay, all right. EU and Do you have an EU passport? No. no. Okay, so but you I'm got a... to you. Does... I thought that was not... Is that sufficient? It's one of the categories for a long-stay visa. Okay. It's married to you. So you had to get a long-stay visa, but you had a pretty good category. Yeah, exactly. Okay. We did All it right. in our case, essentially. All right. So you did not have to pre-apply. No, probably was a good idea, but yeah. we found out once we got here that, that there was a chance, and it turns out it's, it wasn't. Now, All that's... Right. If anyone's listening to this and they're coming, they absolutely should apply ahead of time. Yeah. And, and it's worth doing. Having a long stay is absolutely... Because three months is not long enough. There's too many islands in that. Oh, no, yeah. Better than, better than not coming at all. True. It is, but I agree. You want to not rush it. Yeah. So, tell me about that passage. How long was your passage? It's about 21 days. Yeah. We, we had a good passage, actually. We, we have made some good decisions. We had to make some unconventional decisions. In fact, you were talking about the ITCZ. We crossed, we turned south much further uh, east than most people do, uh, just because of the way that the weather seemed to be forming up. And it turned out to be a good decision. Other boats that left around the same time as us ended up just drifting for three or four or five days. And we had pretty consistent winds straight through. We had maybe one day of, of kind of doldrums weather. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. We had our 80% jib up only most of the time. Yeah. We actually, if anything, we had too much wind yeah. for our passage. What was your average wind speed? Our average wind speed, I, if I had to guess, I'd probably say 18. Wow. 18-ish. That's amazing. 18, yeah. So, yeah. 
pretty big seas. Oh, I we think our average twin speed was like nine. Yeah, we had a lot of people. <laughs> we had um, we had some pretty big. Stuff. We had the sea state was the biggest challenge for us. Um, yeah. We had a lot of really mixed swells coming from uh, you know short short interval swells, right? and uh, it it we actually got knocked down everywhere at one point. Uh, spreaders in the water, like completely wow. on our side. Um, just from a, a wave that broke. And it wasn't a squall. It wasn't the wind. It, it was just the wind. It was a wave. It hit the boat. It sounded like a truck ran into us. Wow. It just rolled us on our side. So how big do you think, you know, the significant waves were at their height? You know, that's such a hard thing to guess, isn't it? I know there were times when you're standing at the helm and you could turn and look up and over your shoulder to see the crests of some of the waves. It was almost close to the radar. Yeah, at least, at least the uh, radar master I looked at. At least. Yeah. Nicole, um, sometimes at night when she was on watch, you would hear these like yelps every once in a while. And it was Nicole hearing like a wave cresting and starting to break. Like, well, you see it with the moonlight, and then all of a sudden you see this like dark and then this like white. And I'm just like, oh, here yeah, we go. You guys, <laughs> you guys don't really have the highest sighted boat. I mean, for its size, yeah. it's pretty low to the water. Yeah. Probably sails pretty well, too, because of that. Yeah. She's fast. Uh, but she uh, handled the waves incredibly well. Yeah. Oh my gosh, we popped right back up, and our monitor thing put us right back on course. Yeah. Cockpit was, was completely flooded. Totally amazing. But in general, I think because she's so nimble, she kind of sort of works her way around. She dances around the waves, sort of. You know, some boats that are longer, I think, sometimes have trouble because they're getting hit by multiple waves at a time. Like, you have a 31 foot, so you know what I mean. You can kind of fit between swells a lot more often than uh, than bigger boats. Like, I used yeah, to captain yeah. a 120 foot boat, and it was a much different story. Yeah, I, you know, I was expecting to cross swell. I didn't feel it, you know. Um, and then in terms of, but I think we just got lucky. We were at a weird time of year, not much wind, so waves were not a big deal for us. Uh, but the other thing about waves is I don't know what kind of communications you use. You use SSB. We use SSB and satellite. Yeah. yeah like my Delorm gives I get get that spot service, and so that always gives me wave heights for the day. So I'll do the 24-hour spot, and it'll take wave height is this. So that seemed about right for what I saw. So I would use that in my logbook rather than my guess, you know, because it's probably more objective. So I don't know if you got those kinds of details when you were on passage. We were much more, like I would download a variety of, of weather faxes. We used a non free code extensively. Yeah. Um, I would calculate my own wave heights based on fetch and duration of the wind and the different pressure systems. And then, okay. you know, I, mean, I, I come from I a surfing check. background, my 100 ton, and, and yeah. I have a very performance sailing background. So, I mean, it's something I've been doing for years. Okay. Um, I yeah. had never applied it to mid-ocean before, but it, it was the same as applying it towards coastal. It's just instead of uh, calculating how it would turn into a breaking wave as it hit the shallower water, you were sort of keeping it in the uh, in the realm of open ocean swell. So you made estimates you just don't want to share. On wave heights? Yeah. Well, because it's such, and when you're, when you surf, it's like a big thing, you know, like how big was the wave, right? And some guy will go, it was seven feet. And someone else will go, that was three feet. You know, someone else will go, it was 20 feet. You know, it's such, it's almost a subjective thing. If I had to say, like, uh, for example, the reports that we would give to yacht reps, like the meteorological reports, I would say the biggest we saw was maybe three meters, something like that, four meters. But to us, too super bad. Well, it depends on what you consider a three or four meter swell. Like, I think a lot of people, say three meter swell if they were to actually do a measurement it would be um, much smaller or yeah i i mean just using this like this podcast i got we had no three meter swells we were really lucky in terms of like mild weather we might have had like one three meter swell for like one day because it said seven right seven feet so yeah three meters two to three meters right it's not three meters no, but see it, it, it's i think people don't pay enough attention to period which makes yeah it makes a big difference i think yeah. that the other thing is the pacific waves i found were a lot easier because of the big water they seemed longer periods but you may have been in some it just depends you may have been in some fronts <laughs> with very short periods right. yeah. yeah it just depends like and yeah. also in the pacific i think um, compared to the Caribbean, you get a lot of mixed swells from, from um, you know, big, significant offshore systems sending swells from, from vastly different directions. Right. True. And yeah. there was a big wave I, surf contest in the 
the middle of our passage. Yeah, yeah that's that's probably a bad South sign. America. That's always a we, bad our sign. Friends were, well, our friends were you know, emailing us, like, there were, like, massive waves so, down but, there. But they were at, like, 20 seconds or 25 yeah. seconds or something. So there were these big, long, rolling, Actually, know, very pretty to watch. Big swells, huge swells, but didn't have much impact on the boat. You know, it was the, the yeah. shorter stuff coming from different directions that would join together and, you know, form these, like, kind of, like, amplified peaks that stuff we had to kind of consciously deal with. We never had to heave too, but we considered it once or twice, especially at nighttime. So, did, did you land in Hiva or Nuka Hiva? Nuka Hiva. All right. And then, uh, did you see much of the Marquesas? Uh, that round? No. We spent six weeks in Nuka Hiva. Six weeks in Nuka Hiva. Uh, we did a visa process. Okay. <laughs> and resting. You right. know. Okay. And, uh, but then we went back for cycling season last year and we spent six months. Uh, so yeah, I'm really five, impressed by this kind of upwind. I, you know, I was, I was, uh, when I talked to Tosh and Ryan to hear that yeah. they went to Tahiti and then they back to Apitake, I never thought that was possible. Oh, well, sure. That's but I mean, good. obviously the Polynesian navigators did that, yeah, but, <laughs> but, uh, I've not heard many cruising boats or I not talked to many either. Right. right. You just got to pick your window. I think, I think a disservice that a lot of people, I think, I think disservice is the wrong word. A lot of people when they cruise, they rely on only predict wind or windy ty or, right. or a router or maybe just the grids only and, and sometimes even uh, a software which will show them based on their polars you know the best the best route to take right. and and i think that that's valuable important stuff to do but i think it's also important that you look at the big picture weather itself the synoptics the different models that are available the um uh, uh streamline analysis which is uh, like a product from the National Weather Service that shows wind direction and speed as a, a almost like a topographic map. Yeah. Because then I think you start to, to understand better the patterns of the, of the weather. You don't just understand what's happening and what the computer models think is going to happen, but you start to be able to understand why and how things develop, and you get a really good feel for that. So maybe you're just relying on the, the end product, but by looking at that other stuff, and it doesn't take long, 15, 20 minutes, maybe a day, learn a little bit, maybe one week focus on streamline, one week focus on satellite maps or images, one week focus on synoptic charts like fleet code. You start to see the connection between those and the models and then you can apply it to real world. So going up wind, the gribs will tell you something and, you can, and you'll know based on patterns, hey, usually the gribs turn out to be in, in this sort of pattern. The, the model's underpredicted or they predict it to be... Um, you know, shifting sooner than I think it really will, or whatever it is. And it helps you make a much more informed decision when you're sailing a more challenging route like upwind. Well, it's good to know that it's possible. You know, tell me uh, about uh, your experience in Nukuhiva. What'd you like? You know, Nukuhiva was okay. It wasn't our favorite place. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Once you're stuck there, you're like, oh, I hate it. But uh, when you were there for a long time. There must have been some things that you really liked. Anahoe was great. And it's I think mainly little... because Anahoe... Um, the water was more clear, so you could swim around. In Taiwei Bay, it's so deep and really dark. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> or, like with, if, if your listeners are getting ready to jump for the first time, and they have this thing in their mind that they're going to get to the Marquesas, and it's going to be this tropical paradise with not that many other people and clear water and coconuts and stuff, that's not Nukuhiva and that's not Atuona, <laughs> you know, the two no. main ports. Um, no. We were kind of shocked to come around the corner and see, you know, 100-plus boats anchored in this giant dark wow. water bay uh it's amazing yeah kind of crowded people there were in our opinion slightly less friendly and welcoming than we uh, expected and that we found out later you know really the only place like papayete the people are friendly and welcoming and we thought Nukuhiva was was even a little bit less so than papayete um certainly less so in our opinion than Hivoa, tawata um, some of the other islands uh, i maybe it was just because we had this expectation we'd love to go back sometime and, um, and sort of really give it a fair shake. Uh, but, but our experience in Nukuhiva, it wasn't negative, but it didn't... Um, yeah, I think it's also hard during the high season there. I yeah. mean, we, we just visited Atuona, which is very busy, right, in the high season, but not so now. And I, yeah. the people were so friendly. Yeah. You know, uh, bending over backwards to help you out, the hitchhiking. I don't know if they did not do that in the Nukuhiva. No, um, not um, so much. But, didn't but really I, need to. We too. agree with you. Atuona is... Atuana and Hivaoa made us fall in love with the Marquesas. Okay. Uh, you asked specifically about Nukuhiva, and we it's would have a little to say... Different, a little different culture. Yeah, exactly. Okay. It just wasn't yeah. our favorite. Yeah. All right. And then uh, 
did you guys see Fatu Hiva? And yes. Yep. Yeah. Wapu. Still buy it. We tend to stay in a place for a while usually when we get to somewhere really remote that, that kind of draws us in. And um, in months, I was in. I didn't even leave the boat. I mean, well, I did. I didn't go on land for three months when we were in um, one of the bays in Kibo. Uh, there's, there's, there was um, some fun stuff to do in the water there. We made some friends with some locals, and and people were always coming down to shoreline and calling us over, and sort of. So I just realized all of a sudden it had been three months since I even stepped foot on land, and yet we never felt like we were uh, not interacting or, or, you know, somehow like being hermits or something. In fact, we were more engaged there than we were almost anywhere else. That we'd been. I forgot what the question was. <laughs> We've been to Fatu Iwa. Oh, yeah. <laughs> We did our second round when we yeah. came. We, we sailed the from the Chumotus to Fatuhiva, that yeah. upwind. Yeah. The most challenging passage ever. Fatuhiva is beautiful, uh, challenging anchorage. doesn't hold a lot of boats. It gets steep quickly. It's sort of a steeply sloped anchorage. So yeah. if you drag, you drag out into nothing. People are really friendly. Uh, it's beautiful. The, the, the scenery is incredible. The hikes, uh, if, if you uh, don't mind heat and, and sort of climbing steep sides, you know, they're easy, right. they're roads, but... Uh, it's worth it if you can get up there. The views are, are stunning. Oh, okay, yeah. But put your bug spray on. Yeah, Tawata <laughs> was one of our favorites. Um, have you been? Did you go to Fatuhiva or Tawata? No, I haven't gone any place. We just went to Hibo. Just Hibo. Oh, okay, well you will. Yeah. Tawata is great because it's close to Hibo, um, but it's night and day. Like Hibo has Atuona, which is kind of the city, you know. It's, you know quotes you know it's a very small right. area but right. you get down to Tawata and, and um, there is one city there by Tahu I think it's called but the uh, other two main anchorages there that are well right. documented in all the books are relatively pristine you yeah. know the, the people are fantastic in the southern anchorage especially they're phenomenal wood carvers we found some of the best free diving in the Marquesas was in uh, Tawata in the southern oh, anchorage okay. The only place where we saw like um, a significant amount of coral coverage and um, you know and, and natural wildlife, we, we swam with wild dolphins many times. There, not many times, a few times there. Um, caught wahoo almost any time patrolled. You know, it's just it, it's it's really truly a paradise. It's the palm trees and the crystal water that you hear right. about when you um, and it's and again it's it's an easy four hour maybe sail from that to Well, yeah, I think if you leave. Atuona's anchorage, and even if you go to the other anchorages, those are pretty remote places. There's not a lot of people that live there. You know, I mean, the Iba road or in, in Iva'oa, yeah. even, the, there are, the road only goes so far. Yeah, in Hanamano, there's no... Well, yeah, keep in mind, no the yeah. northern anchorages are exposed to swell. Um, yeah. At they're least pretty rolly. They're rolly. They're deep. They're deep. They're rolly. Yeah. Uh, if your anchor hooks on a rock or coral better have to go on board or be a really good free diver yeah some of the um the bays are difficult to get offshore if that's something that's really a priority to you yeah um, having said that that's 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 our thing like we we liked that about it right so we spent a lot of time in the more remote bays what was the name of the town you said uh what with the h Hamano. Hamano. right Hamano, right okay. that's where they don't there's there's yeah. no road that goes there yeah, yeah so i was there's like a trail there but the mm-hmm. trail goes up through the mountains. Yeah. And yeah. The mountain trail is kind of sparse. It's a little, it's a little sketchy. <laughs> a little sketchy. Yeah. But you did it. Uh, I didn't go all the way. I went to the, the ridge of the mountain and went down. We were hoping to go up um, Timotiu, and we didn't see a path. And it was getting late for the day. We Had we had an earlier start, maybe. But I'm not that brave. You not on that path. <laughs> Look, I think, I think the Marquesas, a great way to do it is to go in. Uh, you know, if you're in Nukuhiva or if you're in uh, Kivoa, find a local who gives tours yeah. and just go with them because they'll show you all the little, you can tell them what it is. To, if you do a group tour, you're going to go to the touristy stuff. If you say, look, I really yeah. like tikis or I really like beautiful views or whatever it is, and it's just you and maybe one other boat. <laughs> yeah, we were looking into Paco as a guide, but uh, he really didn't want to do it. Paco? Yeah, he does the horses. Oh, yeah. Peter is a great guy, though the back. Okay, Peter, Peter. He's in the, um, Chuck actually added him to the compendium this year. Okay. So Piero, Peter, awesome. fantastic guy, really close, good personal friend of ours. And he's yeah. really good English. He speaks really good Incredible English. English. Very knowledgeable. Yeah, I think we, we were on the trail that we meant to be on. It's just, yeah, I wasn't crazy about the trail. <laughs> After a certain point, it gets sketchy. So you can get trouble out there. Yeah. 
mean, it, people don't realize it's a rescue-free wilderness. There is no yeah, there's no rescue. There is no, yeah. yeah, I mean, there's a fire station. I mean, you can call people, but if you have cell service, well, if you have a sad phone and it works, yeah, yeah. I'll be but. Uh, what are they going to do? They're not going to be able to do anything. So. Right. <laughs> you, know. you can't walk out. You can't. You know, it's not. It's not a trail that you could do if it rained. Right? If it. it rained while you were there, you're in big trouble. How beautiful is it though when it rains? And, uh, and all those waterfalls. Have you been there yet? Please? I have not seen any waterfalls oh. in Hevo. Uh, when it so. rains, when it entire, rains, everywhere you look, there's giant waterfalls. Okay. Especially there in Atorona, we've seen like shore. seven or eight yeah. waterfalls just. All right, that was Ryan and Nicole of Two Float Sailing. You can hear the rest of the interview if you pledge as little as a dollar on patreon.com slash slowboatsailing. You can see the video portion of the interview on episode six of season two on the Slow Boat Sailing YouTube channel right now. That's youtube.com slash slowboatsailing. Bring you another episode of the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast in February. I got a lot of great interviews recorded. I've not decided which one I'm going to edit and release in February. So keep subscribing. If you like this podcast, writing, rating, or review on iTunes. And until next time, have some fun on the water. I'm Linus Wilson. Hi, I'm Jana Wilson. Thank you for listening to the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast. Subscribe to our free newsletter at slowboatsailing.com. This podcast episode and all prior podcast episodes and all videos and pictures produced by Slow Boat Sailing are copyrighted material and should not be used without the express written permission of Linus Wilson. You can email me at linuswilson at yahoo.com.